So I want you to imagine for just a second that you have been at work all day long. And when you get home, your children have gotten off the school bus at about that same time. And you can't leave them at home, but you have several errands that you need to run. So you say, into the car, we're headed to the grocery store. Why? Because we need groceries. Because we need food to eat. Why? You have to have food in order to be able to, to, to feel good and to be able to, you know, when you go to school, you'll be able to eat. Why do we have to go to school? Well, it's required by the state. The government requires you, but it's also beneficial for you long term for a job. Why do I need a job? So you'll have the money to be able to go to the grocery store. Why are we going to the grocery store? All right. How many of you are familiar with that setting? Most of you who have a child at some point in your life, about four or younger, can relate to that. Now, the longer that goes, the more annoyed you get. But a study from the University of Michigan said that that's probably the best thing for kids to do. Here's why. For one thing, kids struggle with inquiry. They want to ask, they want to know, but the child's vocabulary, the child's knowledge isn't big enough to be able to ask those sort of in-depth questions. You and me, uh, you know, as we've gotten older, we know how to approach those questions and we know how to be maybe more specific with our questions. But kids, why sort of solves that? So you might be annoyed by that at times, but the article that I was reading about, that's a study that they had done, said that's probably the greatest chance for success that kids would have. I would agree with that, in part because I think the more we ask questions, the more we learn. Sometimes we don't want to ask questions, but we do need to be able to ask these questions to be able to learn. Now, I'm saying this because tonight we're going to talk about this term, this question, why? Now, I want you to think about what Tom read there just a moment ago there in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in the Garden of, in the garden of Gethsemane. And he goes a little further with uh, Peter and James and John. We're going to talk a bit on Wednesday night about maybe why Peter, James, and John seem to have more presence in the Bible stories than others. But that's for Wednesday. But Jesus is facing impending death. And he's praying. And in a sense, what Jesus is doing, but remember he's not four, remember he's an adult, is Jesus is asking what? There in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's asking why, Right? And even though Jesus is part of the Godhead, even though Jesus is sent to earth, even though Jesus knew in a sense, at least the best that we can figure out, what he was getting into, he's still asking, in so many words, why? He's still questioning, why do I have to do this? Well, how does God respond to Jesus' question? Go to Matthew chapter 26 right there. And I want you to look back at what Tom read. Matthew 26, verses 30, uh, 36 through 39. And if you look at those verses right there, we can look at them all together. He said to them, he said, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he goes a little further fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, 
let this cup pass from me. Now, I want you to stop right there where it says, let this cup pass from me. Because I'm guessing that the previous seven or eight words are written in red, right? Now, I want you to go beyond that. Are the next few words written in black or written in red? They're in red as well. So what we see here is that Jesus poses a question. In a sense, he's saying, why do I have to do this? But he does not get a response from God. There is no, well, here's why we need to. God didn't play that role that you as the parent did just a minute ago, trying to explain it, bring up more questions. And so when Jesus gets no answer there, he says, what? Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. The answer was not forthcoming right there. Jesus knew what he was going to have to die for. Sometimes we want an answer and sometimes that answer may not be there. How many times have we asked God why in prayers or in times of you know quiet or whatever? Well, we don't get that straight down answer from God as well. And I'm not sure how we would handle it if we did. If God were to be able to sort of open the clouds and say, well, here is why, and explain it to us, we would probably then say what? Well, why is that? And then he would have to explain for well, why is that? And all of a sudden, we fell into that four-year-old's position, right? We're asking why, why, why? Well, Jesus tonight, we're going to be talking about why Jesus had to die. Now, this is one of a handful of lessons we've talked about here ever so often about things that happened in Jesus' life. And this is one that I want us to consider. We usually do it on Sunday morning, but it fell to Sunday night this time. But it was simply not possible for what Jesus says, this cup, to be able to pass from him. He would have to die. And he knew that going in. But that doesn't really answer the question for us. Now, you may know the answer to this because you've been studying and in classes in church or what have you. But tonight I want to think about five reasons why Jesus had to die. Okay? I want to come up with five answers. And I don't know if they'll be good answers or not. I hope they are. But these are answers from the Scripture, things that we've seen as to why Jesus had to die. Let's start with the first Jesus had to die to pay the debt of the law. Okay? To start with, the law of God uh, had been broken. I want you to go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read this. It's a longer uh, series of verses, but I think it's worth reading for us right here. But Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. In your Bible, I suspect if you have headings, Within your reading, it probably says right above that, something to the effect of all have seen. We talked a bit about that this morning, but this notion of all encompasses everyone in the room, right? Everyone in and around. Let's start with verse 9. Paul asks in Romans, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Then he says, as it is written there, starting there in verse 10. He says, there is none righteous, no not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. 
The poison of asp is under their lips, <clears throat> whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I suspect that's probably written in a talent in your Bible. Okay? That's taken from the Old Testament. That's not Paul just saying, boy, you know, these people today in 30 AD or 58 or whatever it was he's writing this, he'd been after 30. But that's not Paul saying, boy, these people. He is quoting from the Psalms a couple thousand years earlier when they were saying the people had sinned and fell short of the glory of God. We'll just put it that way. So he's saying that right there. Let's pick back up verse 19. Now we know, this is Paul again, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice that for a second. By the law was the knowledge of sin. What that meant was, is that whenever the law was written there, that's how you knew what you'd done right and done wrong. That law that was so almost impossible to keep, and we talked a lot about this some on Wednesday nights, that it was almost impossible to be able to keep the old law. The requirements were so, so difficult that it becomes something of a checklist, right? We talked about that. But people's heart maybe wasn't in it. They were just doing it because I'm so, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. Well, Paul's saying that is where that knowledge of sin came from, was from the law. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and all who believe, for there is no difference. He says in verse 23 there, right? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the law had to be withheld, but everybody from Psalms in the Old Testament to Romans in the New Testament, everywhere in between, was violating or breaking the law. They were breaking the law by doing what they were not supposed to do. We'll call it what it was. It was a sin right there. Now, there was an Old Testament formula that would sort of fix that, right? You can see the second bullet point up there. But we read in, we read in the Old Testament that the priest would take these sacrifices and they would go behind the curtain, as it were, and they would offer these sacrifices for me and for you who had done wrong over the course of the year. It didn't fix anything, but what did it do? It sort of pushed it forward, right? It was like, okay, it's, you're reprieved for a while. But it's a given that during the next year, you're going to mess up, you're going to do wrong things, you're going to break this law, you're going to sin, and you'll need to come back next year, try again. And you got to do it the next year and the next year. All of that, blood of bulls and goats, those lambs, those things that were slaughtered, those things couldn't fix or atone for sin. Those requirements, God required that the law be satisfied. We read in Isaiah chapter 53, you can read the whole chapter, but verses 4 through 6, that Jesus took the penalty upon himself as a substitute. I've never thought about this before, but Will has a video game that's a, that's a hockey game. And we were playing this one time, and I can't remember if it was my goalie or his goalie that broke a rule, that committed a penalty. Well, the goalie's job is to stand in front of the net and make sure that the puck doesn't get through. Well, if he's penalized, he's got to go sit for two minutes. 
But if the goalie sits for two minutes, what's going to be the net? Wide open. So what happened then was the goalie, even though he had done wrong, he didn't actually leave. He got to stay where he was, but somebody who was on his team had to go set for two minutes for him. See, that's the substitute for someone who's violated or who's committed a penalty. See, we had to sort of stay out, but Jesus was who would be that substitute, who would go and serve that penalty time for us. The goalie sort of gets a second chance, as it were. But do you think the whole time while he's there, the other team has one more player on the ice than they do? He's getting shot at from right and left by the puck. you think he's thinking, man, been nice if I hadn't messed up, so we've had one extra player out here. Do we think that way as well? But that's part of the reason why Jesus had to die. It satisfied the demands of the law. Number two, to demonstrate God's hatred for sin. So God knows what sin is and what it does to people. We all know that. We're, we're, that doesn't make God any better than us. And that's sense, we all understand that right from the get-go. We know how people can get involved in things, get messed up in things, and it just unravels their whole life. We've seen that. We can probably tell you names of people that this might have affected. How many of you have ever heard the statement that God loves the sinner but hates the sin? Well, that's true. I want you to look at John chapter 3, but I'm going to start in verse 17. Most of you can probably say John 3 and verse 16 out loud. We'll see that in a little bit, but I'm going to start in verse 17. We read here, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? What does it say right there? To save, right? That not to condemn, but to save. Verse 18, for he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the point there in verse 18 is that if I believe in God, I'm at least a head start on somebody else because if I say I don't want any part of it, well, I've already knocked myself out. But I'm here. I'm at least here opening, keeping the communication, as it were, the door of communication open between me and God. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. What I read from that in verses 18, or really verses 19, 20, and 21, is that all of us are in some form of darkness at some point. But the door is open for us to walk into the light, right? When you get up in the middle of the night and it's pitch black dark in your house, you try to acclimate yourself just a little bit, right? Where is some light? I've been in this house for 25 years, but where is some light? Now I know where it is. I'm going to walk toward that. Things open up a little bit. That's what we're reading there in John chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. That we have darkness, but the door is exposed for us to walk in the light. When we read and when we say things like God loves the sinner but hates the sin, what that means is we might be over here in the dark doing wrong. The door is still open for us to come into the light. That opportunity is there. That death of Jesus is what opened that door for us. Number three. To reconcile man to God. See, sin serves as a division, right? Between man and God. How many of you remember learning how to do division in school, right? Anybody remember that? That's way back when, right? Math, you know, the first thing you do in math, you add, right? Yeah, what's two plus two? Oh, that's four. That, that makes perfect sense, right? 
What's, what's, you know, what's five minus four? One, two, three, four. I got one left. That's pretty easy. But then it gets a little harder. It's time to multiply and it's time to divide. It's like, oh, multiply. Well, I got three threes and I don't have enough fingers here to make this work. Okay? But now we're going to divide. And usually when we would do things like division in school, what we had was we had these little chips or we had these little checkers or we had apples or some kind of fruit and we had a bunch of them and then they split them up. And there's some of them over here on this one desk and there's some of them over here on another desk and there's this gap in between, right? Well, sin is that gap. I'm over here, God's over here. That gap is the division right there in the middle. James chapter four and verse four says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. See, that division, that divide, when we become sort of that world friendship thing, sort of splits us apart right there. Well, with the death of Jesus, despite our sins, we can be reconciled back. We can be brought back in. Reconcile, you know, you know, we might reconcile finances or funds or whatever it might be. I feel like that's something that Mary does a, a whole lot. I never have to do it. So I spend, she figures it out. Works out great. But reconcile there with the death of Jesus, despite our sins, despite all the things that we do wrong. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. See, that's the thing. We don't have to get right with Jesus. We have to get right with God. But Jesus is that middle thing. Think about the example that I gave. we got some apples here and apples over there, and there's a divide. Well, Jesus is what's going to pull those desks together. It's going to pull me and God into one thing. Jesus serves as that reconciliation, that middle man, that bridge that spans the gap. Number four. To point out a new way. John chapter 14 and verse 6 says that Jesus, describes Jesus as, he, he says he is the one. He says he is the way, the truth, and the light, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, right? You've probably all heard or read John 14, chapter 1 through 6 several times. But I want to think about that verse for just a second. Way, truth, and light, no one comes to the Father except through him. How many of you, this is specifically probably for Josh and Kevin, but how many of you have been sitting in traffic and it is dead still? No movement at all. All of us have, right? For some reason, there's I-65 in Alabama. That happens all the time. So I-75 in Chattanooga, all the time. There are some places that it's just backed up. And the whole time you look, and on that left side, because there's three lanes, and that left, not Tennessee, there's only two, but in Kentucky, there's three. But you look at that left lane, and they start moving. So what do you want to do? I'm going to get over there to that left lane, right? Boy, we're rolling on good. Then we rear in them because, we, no, we're not going that fast. But what starts happening in the middle lane? Now they start going back. I should have stayed over there. And then going, well, let's get over to the right. But these little gaps, they sort of open up and close. But you're really not going anywhere. It's the difference in going three mile an hour and four mile an hour. And it seems like a lot, but you're really not getting anywhere. We were in Boston, coming up to Boston from Cape Cod. And we had moved along well. It said on my map that it would take an hour and 
48 minutes or whatever to get there. And it felt like that was great because we were going to go park at the hotel. We're going to go into town, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And we are almost there. Almost. I can see on the map on my screen the dock where the hotel is. I can see it. Stop. No move. Nothing is happening. And we creep, and we creep, and we creep. And if you've used Google Maps, you know that it's yellow, and then it's red, and red means you're not moving, and yellow means you're not moving either, you know. And then up there where it's blue, that kind of means you're not moving either, you know, because the red's just going to move along with you. But you're getting up through there, but all of a sudden, it opens up. And you've been sitting there for 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 minutes, and it opens up. And you're able to just go right through there. And what are you thinking about when you're driving through into that open? You're not thinking one bit about how much you've been held up. You're like, boy, it sure is nice to be moving again. It sure is nice to be going. Well, <clears throat> Jesus is that opening in a stalled life of progress for us. When we're bogged down, when it's yellow and red, and we're not making any progress at all, Jesus can point out that new way for us. Jesus' dead opened the door. They didn't have any clue what cars were at the time. But we can use that example today because we can relate to it. It opened the door for us to be able to go where we had not been able to go before. Lastly, to simply demonstrate God's love. John 3, 16. I told you we would come back to it. We're here to it right now. Those of you that know it, Know that it starts by saying, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? That whosoever believes in Him should not perish, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That sets the stage for what we were talking about a little earlier in verses 17 through 21, right? But God so loved the world that He sent Jesus. See, everything we've talked about tonight, why Jesus had to die, every single one of these things... <coughs> is some kind of gap filling or some kind of opening for us. See, there's this divide that was there. But Jesus would serve that role. Well, Jesus' death opened the door for us. His death destroyed the power of death. Think about that. Death beats death. That doesn't really make sense, but that's what it did. Hebrews chapter 2, 14 through 18. We read, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, and that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. If you go back up a couple of verses right there, verse 15. This death released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The entirety of your lifetime subject to bondage. I think from time to time, because in the United States we went from the year 1619 to the year 1865, where slavery was allowed in some, if not all, the states at various times of the U.S. 
And that's a long period. That's about 250 years. And nobody in the United States ever lived to be 250 years old. There are some people that were born into slavery, lived forever in slavery, and died in slavery. People that had been born into it had never, the people that they were born to knew nothing better. It had always been that way. And people that when they died saw no real light at the end of the tunnel of that ending. I'm not talking about the people who died in 1864 or the people who were born in 1620, but somewhere in the middle. Those people were forever in bondage. Well, I think that's what Paul or the Hebrew writer in chapter 2 is saying right there. That there are people that prior to the death of Jesus were forever in bondage. There was really no hope of things getting better. Yeah, that priest could go in and roll that, roll those sins forward a little bit. But next year you had to come back and you had to do it all over again. But with the death of Jesus, we don't have to be baptized every year. I got baptized in November of 1995. So what if every, I can't remember what day it was. Let's just say it's November 10th. What if every November 10th I had to come back in here and do it again? What good was the first one, right? I'm just getting, I'm just getting, and November's starting to get a little cold too, right? Think about what day it was for you. If you got baptized in the summer, I guess it'd been better if it'd been in the winter right there. But if you had to do it every year, it's not really doing anything for you. But we, through that death of Christ, through that putting on of Jesus in baptism, through that opening of the door for us, we have the ability to not have to be held in bondage, to not have to be slaves, to, as we see right there, no longer have death, have power over us. We can be comforted in knowing that through the love of God, the door is open for us that whenever our life ends, whatever day that might be, and I don't know when that will be, that the red lines and the yellow lines will open up and the blue line will take us into heaven when this life is over. Think about that as we go forward. Think about what that does for us. That may not answer everything we need to know. But why is a question that helps us learn more. And I hope tonight that we've tried to give answers that maybe can give us a little bit of an understanding as to why Jesus had to die. I hate it for him, but it sure is nice for us. If there's anything that we can do for you, whatever we can do, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. Kneel at the cross, Christ will meet you.